0: This is Classical Music Decoded and I'm Dino Madhroputhu. Now any good concert programmer will tell you that there are certain pieces of music which are more or less guaranteed to pull the crowds in. You include them in your program and people will turn up in droves. One of those works is the Violin Concerto in G Minor by Max Bruch. It's a wonderful piece of music, hugely popular, and it makes for delightful listening. And to unpack it, I'm joined by a violinist whom many people know and have heard, the hugely impressive Zanta Hofmeyer. Hello, Zanta.
1: Good morning, Dino. It's so nice to see you again and to be able to talk to you about this wonderful work.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm pretty excited about it because, you know, I, I was listening to it again in preparation for our discussion and I was reminded of what a brilliant, brilliant concerto it is. But speaking to you now reminds me that the first time I heard you play live was a few years ago, and interestingly, you performed a bruch composition. It was the Scottish fantasy. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. Oh,
1: I'm glad you could be in the audience that day. It was a special occasion
0: for me too. Uh, I remember it because you played it so beautifully, of course. Thank you. And why was it special for you?
1: Because I've never performed it before that day, I'm lying. It was the second performance. But I find Bruch's music so emotionally satisfying. It He really goes right into my heart. And uh, knowing the Bruch Violin Concerto, the G minor so well, it was a wonderful expansion for me to venture uh, into playing the Scottish fantasy.
0: Yeah, no, I agree with you. There's something about Bruch's music that just he just sticks it right in your heart. You can't help but be moved by it. And uh, that's how I felt when I was listening to the G minor violin concerto. Now, perhaps a bit of background about that piece. And what I know is that uh, Brooke made the initial sketches for this work when he was 19 years old in 1857. And he put it on the back burner and he only started to seriously devote attention to it about seven years later. And then there was a public performance performance in uh, 1865, but I understand that was not the final version of the work.
1: That's correct. Uh, He actually withdrew it after that first performance and he sent it to Joseph Joachim and then to the conductor Herman Levi or Levi and the violinist Ferdinand David uh, to get their comments and um, suggestions. He was very uncertain about the work in the beginning. The final version was performed in 1968 uh, in Bremen, and Joachim was the violinist then. But Bruch never really uh, wanted to associate himself too strongly with the work. I read somewhere that he sold the rights to it to Simrock, oh, which, right. which at that point was called um, Krantz, the publisher mm-hmm. Krantz. Right. And then uh, apparently the, the work became the most popular of all the compositions that he ever uh, wrote, and he didn't make a cent out of it, which is so shocking.
0: Oh my goodness, that's a tragedy. Yes,
1: yes. <laughs> oh, no. yeah. And apparently, uh, he he was quite annoyed by by that fact. He uh, was, uh, I read somewhere that two violinists wanted his autograph. They 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 encountered him in Italy. They were so happy to see him, and and he wanted to hear nothing of it.
0: Oh man, yeah, see now I feel sorry for Bruch
1: <laughs> No, you should <laughs> yeah well, the the other thing that I also read about him that that really I feel so sad reading this at the end of World War one, he was so poor, also because there there wasn't a lot of work to do, obviously because of the war and uh, he was trying to find a way of earning some money and then he apparently sold his autograph. He he sent his autograph to two sisters who were pianists and they were on their way to America. And he asked them if they could sell the autograph and send him the money. And they didn't really respect him much. They they took it, they never sold it and sent uh, just fake German uh, money notes as a kind of, you know, pretending to pay him for it, but it was worthless. And he died two years later, probably in abject poverty.
0: Oh my goodness. Mm. Yeah, it always makes me sad when I hear these stories about these brilliant, gifted musicians who write these superb works, and then they die in such, such dire circumstances.
1: Yeah, it shows you musicians are not good business people. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, I think business studies should become
0: an integral part of music studies. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think you've got a pretty serious point there. Now, you said that the work is, is hugely popular, which of course it is. And it's been popular right from the get-go, right from the time the, the revised version was first performed in 1868. What do you think is the reason for its popularity?
1: You know do you know before I answer that question can I answer something else say sure, something go else ahead. another uh, fact that uh, touched me quite uh, deeply to read was that the final score bears a dedication to Josef Joachim uh, where he wrote Josef Joachim in verehrung zu which means um it is um it is an honor to present this to Joachim. And Joachim crossed out Verehrung and he wrote Freundschaft on top of it, above it. So not, not to be honoured, but to have it as a friendship um, agreement and gift right. between the two of them. And uh, I find that quite touching.
0: Yeah, that's a mutual respect and affection between those two musical luminaries.
1: Yes, absolutely. And Joachim is so central to so many... Uh, works that were written for the violin so it's very special.
0: Now we'll come back to that but regarding the work's popularity why do you think it's such a hit?
1: First of all I would say that it really feels like it is genuinely written for the violin you know you can't do better than start on the (laughs) g-string you know to have the first note make uh, made in a long G string note to sound and then have a cadenza that flows out from there so organically it it just uh, I think on many levels is so satisfying both for the performer and for the listener and it's written in the in the key of G minor obviously it goes to um, uh to other keys, and it goes into major keys uh, as it modulates. But that G minor feeling is so strong and there is a, a little sense of melancholy, not even little, probably a huge yeah. sense of melancholy <laughs> that, that that is projected um, through that strong statement of the G minor arpeggio that he uses in the beginning and at the end of the first movement, and then the triumphant ending of the last movement. It all creates such a satisfying journey for the player and for the listener. And I think that that is probably part of
0: why it's so popular. Yeah, you know, I would agree with that. And listening to it, I like the word you use the journey, because I felt like I was being taken on an emotional journey from uh, the first movement, which just grabbed me from the first few bars, to the second movement, which is so gentle, uh, to the third movement, which is triumphant and joyful and happy. For me personally, that's an important reason for why I like this concerto.
1: I agree with you, definitely. And, you know, it's interesting how he intensifies the music from the beginning. First cadenza, G minor. And then the, the winds come in with a second statement in E flat major. As far as I can, yeah. It's That's e flat a related major. key, is it not? Yes, well, not really. No, no, no it's, not. it's not. Yeah, it's the sixth of e G minor. E flat and C minor. Yes, yeah, oh, yeah. Right. yeah. So it, it, it could have been B flat major, but he goes to E flat major, and then the entrance on that E flat of the second cadenza of the violin uh, solo part is so strong. It's, it's almost a revolt against the melancholy, and it's triumphant. And it actually then... Creates the right atmosphere for the real first theme, which happens after that. Yeah, so I think his progressions are perfect, in in my opinion.
0: I tell you what, let's take a quick listen to what, what you were just talking about. as the entrance of the orchestra. Now, it really helps a great deal to learn a bit about the structure of a work. You know, it really helps to, to understand the work better. Is there anything notable that can be said about the structure of the first movement?
1: Yes, I think it's very unusual to start with two cadenzas. There's almost no other work that I can think of that would have that in the beginning usually the traditional form of of concerto writing would be a first exposition which that's what we call it it's like the the the, the orchestra enters with a main theme and gives you all the main themes that that are going to be heard Mm -hmm. all together and then the second exposition would be the solo violin entrance where the violin then plays those themes themes and they are developed. um, Like like the Brahms concerto is like that and many of the piano concertos are like that. In this piece, you have two cadenzas. Then you get the first exposition, which which is immediately taken by the violin soloist. Then it moves directly into a modulatory um, development section and then... A repeat, the recapitulation comes, it, it has a coda section, then comes a big orchestra section, tutti, as we say in the, mm-hmm. in the industry. So that
0: basically means the whole orchestra.
1: Exactly, all together. Mm-hmm. And then follows, to end the first movement, you have two cadenzas again. So there there are
0: four cadenzas in the first movement.
1: Exactly. And the the last two cadenzas are based on the first two cadenzas. Exactly.
0: Now, regarding the first movements, what I enjoyed, and to be honest, I I never really noticed in previous listenings of this this concerto, was that it opens with a drum roll, these soft strokes on the timpani. And this really creates a sense of expectation. Mm. You hear that. And you get this feeling that something's coming. Definitely.
1: For me, a little bit on- ominous, I would say, because it's, it, it is, the drum roll is on G. So it sets the harmony tones and overtones for G minor already, which is perfect. And then the winds start with a G minor chord.
0: Can we pick out some of the themes that are used in the first movement?
1: Yes, Uh, let's start with the first theme after the two cadenzas or would you like to do that? Sure, let's do that.
0: Now, one of the things that I really appreciate about this concerto, it has gorgeous parts for violin and in many places, equally gorgeous parts for orchestra. The melodies in both the violin and played by the orchestra are stunning. So it's not a concerto where, you know, you have these dazzling parts of the violin while the orchestra is relegated to some sort of sidekick, second place role. There's really a lot to listen to for both soloist and for the orchestra.
1: Absolutely. Now, I think he, he uses the orchestra in a very expansive manner. And uh, the violins, when they come in with a last uh, exposition, you know, before the last two cadenzas, they, they really have to play like soloists, the, the vi- all the string players. And um, it's, it is extremely exciting, as you say. What I would also like to mention is that in this piece, when you when you are a young player, it's incredibly important to be very comfortable with your double stoppings, you know, your yes. thirds, octaves, sixths.
0: Now, a um, double stop is when on the violin you play two notes at the same time.
1: Yes, or, two or more. Okay. Yeah,
0: usually two, three or
1: four, because we have four strings. Mm-hmm. So most, uh, the biggest chord would be four string, four four note chords. And that requires uh, some proficiency. You know, technical preparation is very important uh, when you teach somebody before they get to this work. And not only for the left hand, also for the bow. You know, it's a real... skill to know how to play double stop, especially chords three and four note chords because if you use the bow too heavily and you come only down vertically not enough horizontal movement then you get a literally a crash on the string
0: <laughs> yeah that doesn't <laughs> you know. sound too
1: pleasant <laughs> no it isn't pleasant it's not nice for, the, for for anybody to hear or to do so one has to learn how to play the chords with a smooth quick, very fast bow speed and a good horizontal movement um, and and touch all three strings as quickly and together as possible.
0: Now we move on to the second movement and it's quite different in character to the first movement in that it's a very gentle and understated uh, movement. It's quite slow. And many people who write about this concerto say that it's the heart of the work. Is that a sentiment that you would agree with?
1: Definitely, definitely. I find it very emotional. Uh, I've, I've felt really touched by this piece, yeah, but but especially the slow movement. And what is interesting about the slow movement is it it has this sublime beginning with the then the second theme also that you know you can't believe how beautiful it is but then in the middle there's a section that's quite fast moving and and almost tumultuous before it returns again to the first theme okay and you know we we said that the the last note in the orchestra is the long B flat note that's being held, and then mm-hmm. the violin enters with a long G, a full bar, a G F C, and and it, when you hear this for the first time, you wonder where is this going? <laughs> you know, it's it's like it's very static, and then it starts moving, um, and then the second theme is almost like a, a more relaxed, as if he's f- he found his. Place in this movement. He knows now what to write. You know, it's almost like he's searching for that <laughs> melody.
0: Well, shall we listen then to the opening of the second movement? Please. An interesting thing about the first two movements is that there isn't a pause. There's just a lovely smooth continuity between them. Yeah. Is there a, a, a musical reason why the first two movements of this uh, concerto are linked, do you think?
1: I'm not sure. I think they, uh, the, there's always a sense that there should be some kind of cohesion in the work, you know, from one movement to the next and this uh, really serves that purpose I, I, that would be my explanation for it
0: no no i would say that makes sense yeah mm. it does give the work a great deal of cohesion yeah. between the first two movements.
1: Yeah, unless he really didn't want people to clap between the yeah. movements. <laughs> that could be another reason. I don't know if they thought about that. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: All right, now we've just heard a bit of the first theme from the second movement. Shall we continue? Yes,
1: into the second theme. Let's, let's go through to the beginning of the second theme because that also is where it really, the flower opens, you know. <laughs> Okay, so that's the end of the first section of the second movement. And now things are beginning to change again, harmonies. The E-flat major starts getting a a G-flat in there, making it an E-flat minor, minor, which actually sort of goes into G-flat major. So this is definitely modulations that are beginning to happen here. And it's incredibly satisfying to play, Dino. <laughs> like, uh, as I'm listening to it, I, my fingers are itching to do this again.
0: <laughs> well, I hope the orchestras are listening. Come on, get Santa to play this. <laughs> you know, to, uh, because uh, what, what I had
1: to learn is, is the bow control on mm. a long note. And it's so nice because the next entry is a, is a high E flat in the violin. And uh, it says piano crescendo. And then towards the G-flat, it must be a crescendo to forte. So within two bars, you have to make a crescendo from piano to forte. forte.
0: So that's, in, in very layman's terms, soft to loud. Exactly,
1: mm-hmm. exactly. But you have to be very careful that you have enough bow for that long note, that E-flat, and it has to make a crescendo. So it's very dramatic. On one mm-hmm. note, you make you start making this amazing long crescendo, and you reach the G flat, and it's oh, so nice. You know, I I just know the feeling on the instrument to feel the string vibrating like that, and and you hear the sound. Sorry, I'm, I'm waxing mm-hmm. lyrical. No, no, please go ahead. <laughs> this is this is what what mm. what what makes it wonderful to be What makes a violinist's able... heart sing? Yeah, totally. I think that's part of the allure for for us and and the the. Absolute pleasure and uh, satisfaction of playing a piece like this.
0: It's really written for the instrument. Like many people, when I listen to music like this, I get these mental images. And the image that kept coming into my mind was of this lovely, gentle river that's slowly undulating, that it's going somewhere. It has a a path and it has a, a destination but it's getting there gently and slowly. And it's as if you're sitting on the raft mm. and the river is carrying you along. It's an image of real contentment and peace.
1: Oh, that's really beautiful. I love your image. I think that's, that's <laughs> correct. <laughs> that, that can definitely go into a book. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree with you. I think so, definitely. And and uh, that river gets wider and yeah and and sometimes faster the water yeah definitely.
0: Well, so let's listen then to a little of that build up that's contained in the second movement.
1: And the violin is just going higher and higher mm-hmm. and it's as if it's carried by the yes, French it's, horns and yeah, yeah. It
0: it it's gorgeous.
1: And we have the French horns playing a third do ya That becomes the motive, the nucleus of the next theme where the violin will play in G major.
0: You see, very cleverly done. It is brilliantly done. And one of the things that, you know, as as a listener who's often in, in the audience listening to this work, is that we miss certain smallish but rather important details as the work is being played. One of the details is the horn part. And I like how you describe it. It's like the horn carries the violin. And so the horn's really supporting the ascent. Of the violin line,
1: there's something about the sound of a, a French horn that fills a hall, even even when they play softly. softly yes. If you think Mahler or Brahms, you know where the horns are used so often, um, it it just creates a warmth and a it's 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 like it creates a, a sound space for all the other instruments to coat themselves in, to to cover themselves Mm. with. I would love to know how that works in technical terms, because it must have something to do with the vibrations from that instrument.
0: What else can be said about the second movement here?
1: I would like to talk about this section that starts now, because this Mm -hmm. is now where you get more um, movement and actually very fast passages for a slow movement. It's marked adagio. But from here, uh, you know, the violin plays six tuplets. That means six notes in each beat, Uh, sometimes eight notes per beat, which is quite fast. So it's one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, or one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, one, three. You know, Mm -hmm. it feels fast to play it, but it is within the expansiveness of a slow beat. So that altogether creates huge dynamism in the music. I'd like to hear some of that please.
0: Now, in the third movement, it's a completely different mood from the second movement. And uh, I'm not the first person to say this, of course, but the third movement reminds me of the Brahms Violin Concerto, the third movement from that work. And, of course, the common link between the two works is... The third's. Oh, it's Josef Joachim. Yeah.
1: Oh, of course, yes. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I'm thinking no, sorry. of the playing, <laughs> the, the music. Yeah, Josef Joachim. Yes, yes. Uh, why do you say so? Do you know?
0: I'll uh, say that. that. Uh,
1: because because of the Brahms. Uh, yeah, of course, his involvement with the Brahms' final mm-hmm. Concerto. Yes, yeah, I see
0: what you mean. It's yes. the mood and the feel of the third movements from both works, to me, are similar. They sound Very. similar. They have yes. a similar feel. And similar mood, and I was wondering if that's Joachim's doing.
1: I wonder. That's that's a very good point. I think you might be right there, definitely. Yes, I find the the last moment, the fact that the you know the the violas play in a a third that they play, it's like, what's going to happen now? (laughs) What's this? You know, (laughs) it's almost a bit like um, there's something in the air. You know, (laughs) so it it makes me think of um, Bernstein's. Something's um, coming, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's always that feeling, you know, yeah, and and then the first gives us the clue. That's the main theme actually mm-hmm. of the of the whole movement. yeah,
0: let's listen to that beginning of the third movement. Yes. I love it.
1: Words cannot describe it. (laughs) I must say, this is incredible.
0: It is, it is, and to me, it sounds um, faintly Eastern European. There's there's a certain. I think you're right. It's hard to describe, but there's a certain tonality. I'm not sure it's the intervals that Mm -hmm. are used. Yeah. But there's there's something to me that. that sounds Eastern European. Yes. And Joachim, of course, was Hungarian.
1: That's right. So yes.
0: this, this is why I suspect yeah. if, if, if the sound of this third movement had a lot to do with the advice and the revisions that he uh, advised Bruch about.
1: Yes, yes. I think that must be so, because uh, it definitely has that sound. And again, from a violinistic perspective, just technically speaking can you hear all the double stops i can yeah I therefore can. do not attempt this unless you can play third sixth octaves <laughs> oh. Oh. and on the violin you must practice your scales <laughs> 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 and while you practice it uh, the the piece you still have to continue working on that yeah no it's a it's a and you know what what i love is in, in the beginning the violins play and the chilos goes <laughs> It's 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 like a, like trumpets almost, you know. Saying yes, listen to this. Yeah, a big announcement is coming. You know, <laughs> the right, statement
0: there from the chat, yes.
1: yeah. yeah, yeah. And the violin um, entry is, is like a like like the water falling over a cliff. You know, it's just so uh, joyful.
0: What key is this movement in? It doesn't sound like a minor key.
1: Definitely G major. G major. Yeah, yeah. So he modulates from E flat major, second movement, to the G major.
0: Is, is the key, the major key, part of the reason why this movement, this third movement, has a bit of lightness? What, would you agree with that?
1: Definitely. Definitely. And another thing that's interesting, certain keys sound better on the violin than other keys. Because if you have a key where, with notes that can resonate with open strings, the general sound of the of the piece is just so much better and more resonant. So, in in the key of G major, you've got a G which resonates with the G string, which you've, is the
0: the highest string on the violin. The G
1: is the lowest string. Lowest, yeah. Okay. Lowest. You've got a, a regular D, not a sharp or a flat, a D, which is also the D string. You've got the notes A you know, in, in that key, mm-hmm. which also re- resonates with the A string. And you've got the regular, the E, um, uh, which resonates with the E string. So that, therefore, any piece that's written in G, especially G major, but even G minor, you've got a wonderful uh, help from the instrument itself to make the sound bigger and more resonant. Uh, whereas if you play something, for instance, in D flat major or minor, there are very few, there's almost no notes that correspond with open strings. So it, it immediately, to my ears, it makes the sound a bit muffled and, and less resonant. Although you get it a different quality then you get a, for me, like, there's a somberness, maybe exactly because of the lack of resonance. There's not that joyful resonance, you know. <laughs> so that's an interesting aspect for
0: me. Right, no, that's that's interesting to hear, because... You know, you hear this joyfulness and this lightness, and you wonder, how did Bruch achieve this effect? And,
1: you know, the, the first theme is repeated in A minor, and then there's a big uh, orchestra uh, tutti section, again in G major, with, a, with the same theme uh, reiterated, and then a whole section with lyrical triplets in the key of F sharp. Oh, Yeah. (laughs) That's not a violin friendly key. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, it would be interesting to hear that, maybe, because that's in stark contrast to the beginning, but it it adds to the excitement Mm. in my mind. Sure, let's find it. From here, th- this is a new theme that, that gets introduced with a big octave jump. Now, can I tell you something wonderful? Please. Very personal. I had the privilege of being in uh, at the Interlochen Music Festival when I was 15 years old. And I had a wonderful uh, violin teacher, Mr. Howard Beebe. B-E-E-B-E was his last name. and. Um, It's a music camp in um, Michigan in the U.S. And I studied this work with him as well. I played it for him. And when we got to this place, there's a phrase. After the jump, the octave. And then it goes. And he said to me, think of the words, I love you. (laughs) And then later the... um, there's another thing that's based on those those three notes, where it goes da da So he said always, "I love you, da da da, I love you, da da da, I love
2: you, I love you."
1: So I cannot play this piece without thinking fondly of Mr. Beebe reminding me to say those words when I play that those notes.
0: Oh, that's a beautiful mnemonic with which to interpret those. Let's go to it. We have to listen to it
1: now. Yes, please.
0: clearly hear the i love you
1: <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry if i've changed it to forever for you but i hope it's
0: positive <laughs> i think you've changed it for the better <laughs> good yeah we need more love in the world <laughs> yes now how does Brooke bring this third movement and this work to completion
1: so it the last page in the violent part uh, again reiterates the first theme, and he's back in G major after having gone through many different keys, all based on this uh, motive of ta-da-da, tam, ta-da-da. And the coda is built around ta-da-da,
0: ta-da-da, ta da ta-da-da, All of that is happening there. Well, for, for the benefit of uh, people who might not be familiar, with yes. the term, what is a coda?
1: Coda is like the end, the, the final say over everything that has happened it puts together all the themes but in a in a almost a condensed version it's almost like a review and most works have a coda at the end which is like a final one and a half to two minute section that ends the piece and gives you a a feeling of completion it's like almost like the acknowledgments in a book (laughs)
0: right understood Mm. that's that's a lovely explanation Shall we take a listen to the coda?
1: Yes. Another interesting thing is that often, like in this piece, it also accelerates. The mu- music gets faster and faster and faster. So that adds to the excitement. In the, in the score, it says fortissimo appassionata. And then it says presto non co- uh, con fuoco, which means very fast and very fiery. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it, it says it. <laughs>
0: yeah. That was Zanta Hofmeier a highly regarded violinist, discussing Bruch's Violin Concerto in G minor. Zanta is a graduate of the prestigious Juilliard School in the USA. If you'd like to contact her or keep track of her concerts, log on to zantahofmeyer.co.za. This is Classical Music Decoded with me, Dino Madrumuthu. This podcast was produced by Cantata Media. Take a listen to the other episodes in the series.